uh, we are going into a three-week series uh, for Advent called the, the Only Good King. And uh, just, just in time for Christmas, a, a, a trio of sermons on authority, which is exactly what you wanted to hear about, right? <clears throat> when you think about it, I mean, what's, what's another sermon on authority anyway? Our culture has been broadcasting sermons about authority for years. I know when, when I was growing up, um, there were lots of messages out there. The culture is always talking about authority, especially to young people. Uh, I can remember um, the first, some of the first live music I ever saw was a, a cover band of high schoolers, and they were, they were playing the Sex Pistols' Anarchy in the UK. And as a, as a 12-year-old uh, pastor's kid, I was like, wow, this is very different. This is a very different message than what I'm, what I'm used to hearing. But I continued to hear these messages uh, growing up, right? Um, uh, watching movies like The Breakfast Club or Ferris Bueller's Day Off where the enemy uh, is the principal, right? Uh, the enemy in the story is, is the principal. Or thinking about uh, movies like uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall, right? And watching Bill, Bob Geldof, um, you know, take his eyebrows off and, and, and is, is, is dealing, dealing with all of this stuff related to authority, fascism, and all of this crazy stuff uh, that Roger Waters was, was thinking about. Um, and my generation, of course, is the generation that brought you Nirvana's uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit and, uh, and bands like Rage Against the Machine. I mean, how, many, how much more explicit can you get, uh, really, than naming your band Rage Against the Machine? And, of course, unfortunately, that paved all of that. So we can, we can laugh about all that stuff right now, but it's paved uh, the way for our current situation. You think about the lyrics to a song like Lady Gaga's Born This Way. And you realize that, you know, that came from somewhere. There's a message that the culture has been preaching for some time that is culminating in a lot of the things that we are seeing right now. And, of course, some of that is because of tremendous harm that has been done to people uh, who are in authority. So my message this morning is what's so good about authority. We're going to be talking in the, in the weeks to come about what's so bad about authority. And then we'll talk about Jesus' authority on the third week. So... What's so good about authority? Why would God confer on human beings any kind of authority? Considering what we do with it sometimes. And if, if we're going to take in all of the sermons that we are hearing uh, from the world around us, why not listen to what God has to say about authority? So this, this sermon is going to be kind of organized into two parts. In the first part, I want to talk to you about God and his authority. And then the second part, I want to talk to you about God's good purposes for human authority. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you rule and reign over all things. Lord, you have invited us into this place. Uh, and God, we are, we are preaching a message this morning. We're listening to a message this morning that the world is, is not preaching. Uh, we're saying something that's very different. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. God, that you would give us a hunger for your word, for uh, for you to speak to us uh, this morning and change us and equip us, Lord, uh, to, to serve people in this world and to share with them the message of, of the fact that you rule and reign over all things, and yet you have come to be with us and make us your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me start off with, with a definition for you. I want to define this morning authority as the moral right to make decisions about how things should be done. Authority is the moral right to make decisions about how things are done. So the first point we need to look at is God's authority. Let's look at Psalm 93, verses 1 through 2 real quickly. 
The psalmist says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So as we look at this passage, it's a, it's a big God passage. It's a passage in which we see God ruling and reigning over all things. So as we look at the idea that God has always been in authority, we have to ask ourselves, who robed God in majesty? Who's the one who put on uh, the, the belt of strength that he's talking about? Who established God's throne? The answer is no one. God's authority came from himself. God has always been in charge. You see, the problem with thinking about God is that we only have human categories. When we think about our world, we think very much in terms of human categories. Our role is very limited. Those of us who are parents can barely get our kids to take out the garbage, uh, much less do much else. I mean, I've been an authority over my kids for 17 years, and I'm still trying to figure it out, and yet God has been ruling and reigning over creation from eternity past, always in authority. The second thing we need to see is that God is in authority over all creation, because we have to ask if we're talking about a moral right, why does God have the right to rule? Why does God have the right to rule over all things? Let's look at his relationship to creation in Revelation 4.11. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you were created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Well, look at that phrase. By his will they existed. That means that we all exist in this room because God willed us to be. Scripture tells us here that he has authority over all creation because he is the author of all of it. Those, relate, those words are related, author and authority. He has the right to dictate what quasars and viruses and Venus flytraps and all kinds of other created things do and what their properties are because he made them. They all find their origin in him. And when you think about how big the universe is, and that's just the visible material world. Uh, Daniel Purnell uh, preached a great sermon a couple months back, uh, the Soli Deo Gloria sermon. You can listen to that and, and uh, just get an earful of that idea of how big creation is. But when you see how big creation is, and the fact that he exists, it exists because he made it. You realize that he alone is powerful enough to run it, right? He alone is powerful enough to run it. Read Psalm 104 or Job 38 through 41 in, in your quiet time this week. You will see that God not only made all things, but that he sustains all things. And he does so in an incredibly personal way. God is, God is not some deistic God which just kind of sets things into motion and then takes his hands off and lets the clock run out. No, God is personally involved in every situation. And everything is dependent on him, especially us. Look at Acts 17, 24 through 25 with me. This is the Apostle Paul speaking uh, at Mars Hill. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. So not a bit of our lives is possible without God having created us or sustaining us. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus sustains all things by the word of his power. So God then, according to the passage, needs nothing. He needs nothing at all. And he doesn't need our best efforts. He doesn't need our best intentions. He doesn't need our well wishes. He doesn't need our good thoughts. If someone says good thoughts one more time on on Facebook, I'm going to scream. Um, But this passage tells us that we absolutely need God. It says, in him we live and move and have our beings. That's present tense. Not that we came to, just that we came to be, but that we continue to exist because God wills us to be and because we need him. We are dependent on him. Now, sinful humanity does not like this thought, right? That's what songs like Anarchy in the UK are written about. Think about, but think about, about this a little bit more personally, right? Think about the last time you had to ask someone to help you to do something that you could not do on your own. Maybe it was picking something up and moving it into a truck. Maybe it was fixing something. You probably came up with every, you, you, you ran through every scenario. What is, is there any way that I can avoid asking someone to help me? Because we hate being dependent on others. We don't like revealing the fact that we are frail, that we need something outside of ourselves. We don't like being dependent on anyone, much less dependent on one person like God. Honestly, it wounds our pride. It, it's an, but it's an aspect of being a, a created being. Only God can say that he needs nothing. So it's part of why sinful, not sinful humanity wants to disavow the fact that it has a creator. We'd rather ascribe our, our being to chance and evolutionary processes than we would to say that we are dependent on God. But it's ridiculous when you look at it, and, and it's great. The Bible has a great sense of humor. God makes a little, pokes a little fun at us in Isaiah 29, 16. Look at this passage with me. This is awesome. It says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing should say of its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. I mean, I can imagine this little clay dude like kind of like mouthing off at, at, uh, at the potter who is, is shaping. It's, it's funny in my mind, at least. Um, but you get this picture, right, of the creator, of the creature shaking its fist and saying, he did not make me. I, I, I made myself. And, and yet we have to ask the question, where did you get that mouth from? How did you make your mouth? How did you create your nervous system the, or the muscular system that helps you to shake that fist? Now, can we be honest, even as Christians, and say that we struggle with this at times, this idea that, that God made us exactly who he wants us to be? I mean, maybe you don't like the family that you were born into. Maybe you don't like your body or the sound of your voice. Maybe you wish you had uh, different natural skills. Maybe you wish you could sing like Nick Steineken. But God in his sovereignty has fashioned you. 
Uh, Brent sent us out a, a, a song uh, in, a, in a text the other day by a band called Delirious. And in the song, it's called Our God Reigns. And it has this great, great uh, couplet in it. It says, God didn't screw up when he made you. He's a father that loves to parade you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Psalm 139 talks about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. So God made you out of his goodness. Now, it would be terrifying if God was all-powerful, but he was capricious. That he could be evil one day and good another day. Just depends on how he's feeling that day. But God is always good. All that he does is good. And we can see that his heart is pure towards us and right and good. Because otherwise, why would he permit us to continue when some days we shake our fist at him? Instead, God continues to supply us with good things. He, uh, and he even gives us authority. So when we approach this topic of God giving authority to mankind, we need to keep his goodness in mind. So God does something amazing in, in regards to man and authority. He shares. So if you're looking for a role model for, for your young kids... And, and their trouble with sharing, look no further than God. He's got you covered. So let's talk about how God shares his authority for a moment. Let's get into a passage. Let's go to Genesis 1. And we're going to skip around in Genesis 1 and 2 a little bit as we talk about um, God sharing his authority with humanity. So let me revise my earlier definition when we apply it to mankind, okay? When we talk about conferred authority, which is God giving authority to man, authority now is the God-given moral right to make decisions about how things are done. Make sense? All right. So in the case of Adam and Eve, this is what it looks like. Let's look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God makes mankind in his image and likeness. I, we could preach another whole sermon on that topic, but we don't have time today. But I want you to see that related to that fact is the idea that God delegates or vests some of his authority in mankind. He says, let them have dominion. Now, God's, God's authority is not decreased by that. God is still running everything, and yet he has put mankind in a position of authority over parts of creation. So in verse 128, he gives them more commands, more things that he wants them to do. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So God is telling uh, Adam and Eve, bring creation under my rule and reign. Cause it to reflect me and all of my goodness. That is going to take some work. That's something God gives them to do. Puts them in authority. Puts them in charge over creation. And then look down at Genesis 2, verse 15. In Genesis 2, we see a little bit more zoomed-in version of what's happening on day 6. Look at verse 15. It said, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. So God gives uh, the man specific instructions 
on how to work and to keep the garden. Uh, that first word, that, that word for work, can also mean serve. So there's the idea that, that um, mankind is not just there taking whatever he wants. He's there serving. He's, he's causing it uh, to flourish. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And then in verse 19, we see God give Adam an additional responsibility, more authority. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had, given, had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So God brings animals for Adam to name. The Bible tells us whatever the man called every living thing, that was his name. And that, that, that must have been a fascinating experience to just sit around and name animals all day long. So this is a pretty nice deal, right? Adam didn't make any of those creatures, right? If we build a building uh, here in, in Ackworth, we have the right to name that building, right? We have the right uh, to call it whatever name we want it to be. And yet here is God. He gives the right and the authority to Adam to name these animals in creation. And of course, in, in Hebrew culture, we see that that naming something means that you have authority over it. So, no sin has entered the world in Genesis 1 and 2. And yet, God, is, God sees what's going to happen. He sees that even with all of the misuses and abuses that are to come of, of human authority, God still considers it good to confer authority on humanity. So, Let's talk some about how this looks, not, not just um, in, uh, in creation at the beginning of all things, but how it looks in our everyday lives. So let's look at some of the roles of authority uh, that we have, and I think we've got a slide for that. Thank you. So we've got, and this, this is just a partial list, but these are the things that Scripture talks to us about, roles of authority. We have government and civic leaders. Romans 13 talks about that. We have church leaders. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, those are all passages about elders and deacons. Um, there are passages that are addressed specifically to Colossians, th uh, Colossians 3, Ephesians 6, 4. Uh, husbands uh, as, as leaders in their families, there's a list of scriptures there for you. And then employers and managers, there's instructions again in Ephesians and Colossians. That, again, that's just a partial list, but God gives us specific teaching on these groups. And some of these roles appeared before the fall. So we know that, that human authority is not a bad thing. It's something that God has ordained. And we see that we see this is true. The re, part of the reason for authority is because without authority, nothing flourishes. Nothing grows. Nothing uh, becomes all that God has it to be. As a matter of fact, if you take authority out of a situation, you've got a lot of trouble. Think about it. When governments collapse, it's not pretty. We've seen some of that happen in our lifetimes, right? I can remember uh, the, the genocide that happened in, in Rwanda and seeing some of the images of what happened when the government lost control uh, of its citizens, and they began to, to kill each other. When governments collapse, it's, it's not pretty. When big businesses fall apart and everyone loses their jobs, that, that whole structure falls apart. Uh, that, that negatively affects families. It negatively affects our economy. When families fall apart and disintegrate, it's an incredibly sad thing. And of course, some of us have experienced the, the wreckage that that causes 
in our lives when families fall apart. Without that authority, um, nothing flourishes. So let's think, if, even if you're not uh, a civic leader in this morning, even if you're not a parent this morning, you still have authority that God gives you to wield as a Christian. Let's look at Matthew 28, 18. This is the verse right before the Great Commission. It says, Jesus said and came to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So right before Jesus sends everyone out on the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, he's reminding them, look, you're doing these things under my authority. And I'm giving you the authority to go out and to preach the gospel, to make disciples is an authoritative act. It's authoring life in the life of another person. So God wants us to use his authority to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them, to observe all that he has commanded us. He wants us to invest our lives in the lives of other people. This is what our passion teams do, and hopefully it's what you're doing uh, at your workplace or, or at home with your kids. You are investing in the lives of other people. You're using the role of disciple maker in order to make disciples so that other people would flourish. So I've been talking a lot about, keep using this word flourishing, so I need to outline four purposes for us. Of, for good authority. These are four purposes for good authority, good God-given authority. Number one, good authority cultivates life in those that it serves. Good authority cultivates life in those that it serves. So you think about it. God gave Adam and Eve the ability to cause things to grow and then to pass that instruction down to their kids. So they're investing in the lives of their children. Hopefully you've had a good coach or a teacher at some point uh, in your life who really invested in you. They, they poured their life and their skills and their knowledge and their ability into you in order to make you better at what you were doing. Now sometimes this is inconvenient for the person who's doing the investing. But good authority is not self-seeking. Now, you realize as a parent, as you're training your children, that you're not going to get the best quality work out of them the first time you assign them a task, right? You're not going to get perfectly spotless dishes the first time you assign your eight-year-old to wash dishes for you. You're probably going to have to go along behind them and, and do it again, or it's going to take you twice the time just to teach them how to do that job. But you're not, do, you're not allowing the eight-year-old to do that job because you think you're going to get the best return out of your time. You're doing that because you want to see them grow. You want to see them flourish. You want to see them to become a responsible adult, right? Which is what is good for them. Now, they may not enjoy it at the time, uh, but, that is, but that's what you're supposed to do. Second thing about good authority is that good authority cultivates life in the bearer of the authority. So that's you and I, if we're in a position of some kind of authority. God did intend for Adam and Eve to grow in wisdom, um, but also in obedience, patience, and love. Right? God's attention, uh, intention for them was always that they would grow in wisdom. He wanted to invest in them. So in order to be a better teacher, a better policeman, a better manager, you yourself must grow in ways in which you see you're inadequate, right? Husbands, as you invest your life in your wife, you're going to become a better, more selfless man. 
thinking about yourself as a disciple maker. As you make disciples for Jesus, you begin to think about how you need to grow in order to be a better help to other people. You're going to begin to study uh, different things in the Bible. Maybe you need to read some books on how to study the Bible in order to help those that you're working with. So bearing authority can make you better. It has that benefit for us. Number three, good authority provides definition and direction. Oh man, this is one we don't like sometimes, but it's, but it's so true. Adam and Eve are given definition by God, right? God tells them, you are male, you are female. He defines that for them. They don't have to make that up for themselves and try to figure out what gender is. And God also assigns them. He tells them what marriage is supposed to be like. He says, marriage is supposed to be the two becoming one flesh. The two become one. So they don't have to to figure out those roles on their own. Those things are assigned to them by God. God provides that definition and direction for them. They're also given direction by God in terms of what they're supposed to be doing. So there are specific ways in which they're supposed to glorify God by multiplying, subduing, naming, all of those things that we just read about. God also gave them a specific boundary. We hate boundaries as humans, but they are good for us regarding uh, the tree of knowledge. Remember, a good boss, right, will give you a job description, and they will hold you to it. They will say, these are the things I hired you to do. This is what you're supposed to do in this job. So when, every, and when everyone does their job, the company thrives. It grows. When you have to set a boundary for one of your kids, your goal is to help them to grow in wisdom so that those restrictions will ultimately be taken away, right? Right now I've got uh, some drivers in my house and I have to restrict where they go, how far they go from our house because they're inexperienced. And that feels constricting for them. It feels like, it probably, honestly, it probably feels oppressive at times. But the reason I'm doing that is because I want them to be healthy and I want them to be a good driver for the rest of their lives. So they've got to start small before they go driving off to Chattanooga. All right, so I've got to set boundaries for them. It's good. And and those boundaries are going to be taken away as they mature as drivers. So then they're going to, someday they're going to be setting boundaries for themselves, right? They're going to be going, you know what? I've been driving for eight hours. I think I need to stop. I think I need to stop for the night. That's a, that's a good boundary for them to learn how to establish for themselves. So all of those, all of those boundaries are ultimately there to increase their freedom, not to take it away. Number four, good authority teaches us what God is like. Good authority teaches us what God is like. When we father, men, when we father our kids well, they come to a better understanding of God's patience with us and his goodness to us. Amen. I hope that someone that you are discipling would someday call you a godly man or a godly woman. And the reason for that would be that they see God. They see his character at work in your life. They're seeing that reflected in you. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says to his disciples, as I loved you, so you also must love one another. This is how people are going to know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. If you've been hanging out with Jesus, you're going to become more like him. If you are under his authority, you're going to be shaped by him. You're going to be transformed. You're going to be more like, you're going to be more loving as he is. But there are obvious enemies of good authority as well. And we subscribe to these at times. And Brent's going to talk more about this in the second week. But let me just cover a few briefly. Number one, there's an unhealthy desire for authority. 
There can be an unhealthy desire for authority for us. And it doesn't mean that we, you know, become Vladimir Putin. It, it means that we have a, a self-centered desire to have things our way for the sake of our comfort, our attention, or recognition, or a desire to control situations. And this can start really small in our lives. But it's there, right? We have this unhealthy desire for authority. I want to be in charge. I don't think God is doing a very good job in this situation. I think I'll take over. I think I will step in for him. And that is sin. We're willing to sin in order to get whatever it is we want or whatever it is we're trying to hold on to. A couple of examples uh, in Scripture. You see uh, Third John Verses 9 and 10, there's a, there's a man named Diotrephes. And, uh, and John, the apostle, is talking about Diotrephes. And he says, Diotrephes loves to be first. He wants to be in charge. And he's actually doing some things. He's, he's speaking badly about John and about some of the other leaders. And he's saying, no, instead, pay attention to me. Diotrephes is trying to take control of the, of the situation there in that church. And then we just did our, our men's retreat, um, or men's conference uh, earlier this year. We talked about Saul. And we find his story in 1 Samuel 9 through 31. Saul is a man in Scripture who longs to hold on to control. He, he fights God in so many ways throughout his story, trying to hang on to his kingship when God has already taken it away from uh, him and given it to David. So there's that unhealthy desire for authority that sometimes happens in our hearts. There's also, and this I think is even, even, even more prevalent at times, there's trying to avoid responsibility. It's trying to avoid responsibility. This is, this is what I sometimes find myself in. Think about uh, back in the 90s, there was a basketball player named Charles Barkley. Sometimes you guys see him on ESPN. I think he does some, some commentating from time to time. But, uh, but, but Charles Barkley uh, was kind of a rough dude, and, and there were some things that he was doing uh, on the court and in his personal life uh, that people began to kind of like poke at and say, hey, look, man, there's, there's kids watching you. Don't, you. don't you see there's people who are looking up to you? You play a, a, the, a role for a role model uh, in the lives of all these young kids who are looking at you. Why are you doing these things? And, and Charles Barkley's retort was, look, I'm not a role model. I'm a basketball player. Charles Barkley was avoiding the responsibility that he had in that situation. But here's the truth. Your life is given to you and God expects a return. So we can't cop out and say, well, that's not, I don't, I don't have that kind of responsibility. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells this parable. It's called the parable of the talents. And in the story, there's a group of servants that are all given a, a, a quantity of money by the master who then leaves town and leaves them to invest it uh, in the world around them. And when the master returns, he asks for an account of what happened to my money. So each of the servants comes in turn and, and, uh, and, and the master says, uh, hey, I see that you've earned you know, X amount of money. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then he comes along to this last guy. And this last guy has buried his talent in the ground. And he basically just returns it to the master. And the master's uh, reply to him, we find in verses 26 and 27, it says, But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So the master calls him wicked and slothful. I mean, why? Didn't, didn't, he, give, didn't he give the coin back to the master? Didn't, didn't the master get back what he gave to him? It's not like he ran off and, and stole it. 
The master calls him wicked and slothful. Why? Because he's tried to avoid responsibility for its loss. He's abdicated the position and the responsibility that God has given to him. The master's entrustment makes him responsible. The fact that the master gave it to him with the expectation, I want you to do something with this money, makes him responsible. There's no way for him to avoid that. And of course, that is what we do at times in in our lives. God wants us to take the things that we have authority for or a responsibility over or an entrustment over and use them for his glory. Because this is our purpose, right? It's not just to enjoy all the good gifts that God has given to us. It's to use all of those things to bring glory to God. So we have all failed. We have all failed miserably in one of these two ways, right? In the way that we have handled authority. I'm sure you can, you're already making good applications in your lives as, a, as you're thinking about this. But some of you have been harsh with your kids or created rules that are aimed more at creating comfort for you than they are for maturity for them. I know I've done that. You've, some of you have failed to invest in employees and then turned around and blamed them for mistakes that were made because they were not well-trained. That's not a good use of authority. And all of us have avoided making disciples for Jesus because at times we're honestly just afraid to fail. We're afraid to mess things up in the lives of other people. And yet God entrusts us with that authority, with that responsibility. And of course, as we come to the end of the sermon, you know I'm going to talk to you about Jesus and we are going to get to the nativity. <laughs> God took, what did, what did God do with our sin, with our abdication of responsibility? What did he do with our lust for power and control? God took responsibility for it. He sent his son to be the one who would restore mankind to its, to its place under God's rule. Look at Galatians 4, 4 through 5. This is my favorite nativity passage outside of the Gospels. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, Jesus humbles himself and is born of a woman. What does that mean? It means that Jesus embraced all of our frailty. He took on a body that was dependent on sleep, a body that was dependent on food, right? A body that was dependent on, uh, on water. Those things had, Jesus had to have, well, he had a physical body on earth. He needed things. So Jesus was born under woman. He became like us. All of the ways in which we don't like being dependent, Jesus embraced those uh, for his own sake and for ours. Jesus also replaced himself under the requirements of the law. So anything that we have to do in order to follow God, Jesus placed himself under those same requirements. And he succeeded every time. And he did this in order to redeem us from the curse of those who disobey, disobey the law. Because there is a curse on those who sin against God. The wages of sin is death. And we reap it not only in this life and we see the, the destruction around us when we, when we look at this world that is full of sin. All of that is there because the wages of sin is death and we're receiving some of our wages now. We're going to receive more in the life to come unless we place our trust in Christ. 
The Bible tells us that, he would, that Jesus would do exactly what as was prophesied to Joseph in Matthew 2 when it said that he would die to save his people from their sins. Jesus rose from death on third day, on the third day, conquering death. And for those of us who trust in his death as payment for our sins, we receive adoption as sons. That means we are grafted back into his family. And these will be, we, we will become sons who will use the vested authority that is given to us to glorify God, to make disciples, to do things that please God. So this morning, I need to challenge you. First of all, I need to challenge you on your thoughts on authority. Is it good? Can it be good? Can it be used by God in your life and in the life of other people? I hope you see that the answer is, is yes. Every good gift comes from the Father of lights and rightly used brings glory to him and causes humanity to flourish. Authority, good authority, God-given authority can be a blessing in the lives of others. Secondly, I want to encourage you to receive forgiveness and to repent for your misuse of authority or your avoidance of responsibility. I want to encourage you to step out in faith this morning and watch God use you as, as a, a vehicle for blessing in, uh, in their lives. Don't be afraid of failure. God knows that we will fail, and yet he continues to give us responsibility. Step out in faith. Trust that God can work through you. And lastly, if you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, man, what a great opportunity you have this morning to respond by placing your faith in him today. You need to come to God with your hat in your hands. You need to admit that you are dependent not only on him for, for life and breath, but also for salvation. The fact that you can't fix your life. There's no amount of good things that you can do in order to save yourself from your sin. You need to admit that you need God to save yourself from your sin and to receive his gracious gift of salvation. Don't let that pride, that, that desire for, uh, for independence keep you away from him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the authority that you have. God, thank you that you rule and reign over all things. Lord, there is nothing in this world that you are not master over, that you do not control. And yet, Lord, in spite of the fact that we sin, that we have done wrong against you and against your creation, Lord, you want to redeem us. You want to give us an opportunity to work with you, to take the authority that you've vested in us to bless other people and even to share the message of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the gospel as that kind of entrustment, as that kind of responsibility. We can't just bury it in the ground. Lord, we need to invest it in the lives of other people. Give us the grace and the courage to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.